we're on spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are an interesting topic that help us grow in God. And um, last week, I don't know why, but we, we were talking about fasting, and uh, I, no one was like amen in me. I don't get that. So if you missed the fasting one, well, praise the Lord. You're here today for a, a more exciting one. Uh, you're here for, for community and celebration, okay? Penelope. Okay, that's Clementine, right? I get okay. Called her Penelope at first. Clementine. Hey, uh, you know, just a little side note for my therapy. I almost lost a family here because I called their child by the wrong name. You know, really, really. There's like two babies born at the same time, and it's like, ah, forgive me. So, anyway, okay, I feel better. I got that off my chest. Um, we're going to talk about community and celebration now. As we talk about spiritual disciplines in First Timothy four, I think it's four seven. Uh, the, the, the Lord says, Paul says to Timothy, he said, exercise yourself, train yourself to be godly. Now, I'm telling you because the devil sold so many lies to us, we think, oh, that'd be awful. But, but it's not awful because the Bible says that godliness, even in that passage, godliness is profitable for everything. Everything. So is there any area of your life you don't want to be successful in? Godliness is profitable for every area. And it holds promise now in this life and in the life to come. There's very few things that you'll see, wow, it really helps here and in eternity, but, but godliness does. And the New American Standard said that we're to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So spiritual disciplines are, are actually things that are self-imposed. We impose these practices upon ourselves. I mean, the church doesn't say you have to do these things, uh, God doesn't even say, you have to do these things. But they're biblical practices that we impose upon ourselves to make us spiritually fit and healthy. So we've looked at some of the interior things, like like study and meditation. And those are fun ones. Then we looked at prayer, and that's okay. But then we looked at fasting, and that's a tough one for Americans. Uh, We looked at fasting. Those are inner things. Those are things that we do, very individualized, very personalized. But today we're going to look at corporate things we do. Now, when I say the word corporate, uh, it, does, it has nothing to do with business. I mean, sometimes we hear the word corporate, we think of corporations, we think of businesses. Uh, anytime a business is big and it has multiple sites, when it comes together as a body, it's corporate. It's a corporation. It may be spread out, but it comes together as one body. The, the word uh, is Latin. Uh, comes from corpus, which means body. You've heard the word corpse, right? That's corpus, Latin for body. Oftentimes the church is like a corpse. We don't want to be like a corpse. We want to be like a living body, you know, alive and living. So uh, a corporate discipline is a body discipline, a group discipline. We come together. So when you hear the word corporate worship, corporate praise, corporate prayer, corporate gathering, it's just saying it has nothing to do with business. It's just saying we're coming together as a group. All of us are coming together so we can uh, do a particular thing, worship God, pray, whatever, as a group, as opposed to individual things, because obviously we can individually pray and worship and do all kinds of things. So we're going to deal with the first one uh, today of community. Now, God is all about community. God actually exists in community. There are three that bear witness in heaven. These three are one. God, God, God the Father, Son, Spirit is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, one God. 
So there aren't three gods ruling the universe. There's one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who lives in this holy and perpetual and eternal community that actually is, I really mean this, it's actually indescribable. We, we try to describe it, but our intellect only goes so far, and then we short circuit, and then, then usually we can oftentimes come up with really junky human theologies that just can't get around the mind of God and, and who God is. But Paul tells that to Timothy once. Hey, Timothy, he's basically saying this in our lingo. Uh, I get it. God's big. Uh, we can't really get our mind completely around him. We do our best we can, and, and it's a mystery, and we can't comprehend it all. So God's huge, but he does live in this perpetual, eternal, holy community. And then he creates this thing called the church. Now, the church, as we know, is not a building, but it's a group of people. And there actually is, I want to say this seriously, there is only one church. It's the believers all over the globe. There's one church. There may be different locations that we're meeting in, but there's only one church. And so God brings together this, this entity called the church, which had never been heard of before, and he creates this thing that's supposed to operate in holy, perpetual, eternal community. It's, it's really interesting. And uh, Ephesians tells Ephesians 1, I think it's like 22, 23, 24, somewhere around there, that it describes the church. It says this, the church, the body of Christ the church, the body of Christ, who fills everything in every way. That's who we are, the body of Christ. We are to fill everything in every way. And so there's the the definition of the church. Now, most of the New Testament is written in in Greek, and I'm going to guess most of us here, maybe none of us, can read Greek or, or, or talk Greek or whatever. So the Greek New Testament was translated into English for us as well as just about every other language on the planet. So we could read it ourselves. And the Greek word that they picked, and by the way, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to study, but the Greek word that they picked that was translated, that we call church in our Bible, is the word ekklesia. And by the way, depending upon what theologian you hear pronounce it, they all have different pronunciations, but ekklesia is what I say. The ekklesia. Now, the ekklesia is a called out group of people. Now, there's two dynamics that's going on, as there often is in the kingdom. There's a spiritual dynamic. Guess what? You've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's the first and most important calling out. But then when we gather as the ecclesia, then we're called out from our homes, just like what you've done today, and we've gathered here in this place to worship God, to adore him, to celebrate him, to to learn, to grow. We've come here for a purpose. Now, the actual Greek word ecclesia isn't a spiritual word at all. It truly is any gathering of people They've come to a central location for a specific thing. So if you go to an auditorium and listen to a concert, guess what? The people who gathered there are an ecclesia. If you go to a gymnasium to watch a ball game, the people who have gathered there, left their homes, showed up to watch this ball game, that's an ecclesia. When we have gathered here in this place today, we've left our homes and we've come here and gathered here, this is an ecclesia. We're coming together in community. We're coming together to meet. That's an ecclesia. So... The, the church is actually a, a group of called-out people. Now, many, many years ago, we had somebody on the worship team, uh, a sweet guy and family, but uh, as we cycled different players, I noticed that they really only started showing up only when they were serving. And so uh, I'm not a mean person, but I was just talking to him one day and said, man, we, we miss you and your family when you're not serving and you're in kind of a leadership role here. What can we do to make your attendance more consistent? And by the way, we don't, you know, get crazy about that, but God calls us to be faithful. 
And uh, he said, he wasn't mean about it. He just said, hey, when I'm not on the team, you know, we stay home and we sing and we pray and, and we generally watch a TV preacher or something. He said, that's church, isn't it? And I said, no, it's not. It's not church. It's family devotions, which I support and love and encourage you to do. But it's not church because the whole concept of church, the ecclesia, is you're called out from your home to a location to worship, to serve, to to praise, to grow, and to learn. So it's family devotion. And also it's kind of interesting because if we're not careful, we got 168 hours a week, but they were having their private devotions during the time, only time of the week that we would gather together as a family. And so I encourage us to prioritize the gathering of the family. Now, a few years ago on Facebook, I was posting some things, Bible verses, and quotations from uh, great ministers about this unswerving commitment to faithful church attendance. Well, if you ever post anything on Facebook, you, you can often get a little pushback. The, the good news was all the pushback that I got was kind and considerate, which is kind of unusual for Facebook, but this was kind and considerate. And, and uh, people would say, you know, I, I'm happy that that works for you, and I, I know you love God, and I know church is important to you. And Now, thankfully, they never said this. They never said... I'm not coming to church because I had a horrible experience. I was treated rudely and meanly, and it's just an awful church experience, the whole thing. Which, by the way, it's happened a million times. That has. You know, people have come to church and had bad experiences, legitimately had. And then other times they're in our own head, but, but it's happened. Fortunately, none of them said that. But I do want to let you in on a little uh, secret of the devils. He only wants to pick on spiritual things. I came to church. People were rude, or I was treated poorly, and it does happen. I'm going to tell you something else sad. There are people in pulpits today and leading churches that don't even know Jesus as their Savior. And so, you know, they might have had a bad experience with a Christian, because we Christians can be jerks too. I know that. We don't want to be, but, you know, non-Christians can too. And so I don't even know if they were Christian people they had the problem with. But, but no, since they say, I'm never going to go to church again because they had a horrible experience. It was awful. Now, let me ask a question. Have you ever been to a restaurant and had an awful experience? Yeah. It took too long to get seated. You got seated. It took too long to get your order. When you got your order, it was bad and cold. You know, everybody was a jerk. They were rude. They were everything. Now, did you leave that place and say, I'm never going to a restaurant ever again? No. You might have said, I'm never going back to that restaurant, but you didn't throw all restaurants away. Notice how the enemy only picks on spiritual things. One bad experience in one church, and there's a million of them around the world, and now I've thrown all churches away. Have you had a bad experience at work? Have you had bosses that were jerks or co-workers? And, and did you throw away work? Did you say, I'm never going to work again? You know, you get the idea, school, whatever. We don't just say, I'm never going to do anything except spiritual things. So be very, very careful with that, because that's one of the enemy's tactics is just to push those spiritual issues. In, in fact, there was a gentleman that came in for some counseling years ago. He's only in my office because his wife, who was a believer, said, go meet this guy or, you know, we're done. And so he came in there and he, he let me know. Again, we were polite to one another, but he said, I'm not really interested in having any spiritual conversations. And I said, well, our conversation is probably going to be kind of short then because I can give you some natural things to do to improve your marriage, but also spiritual things. So he told me, he said, I'm, I'm the son of a pastor, and so I'm a PK, I'm a preacher's kid, and I had religion jammed down my throat, 
and I'm not going to do that to my kids. I'm not going to jam religion down their throat. And so I said, okay, let me, let me ask you some questions. So your parents made you go to church. Yeah. Did they make you go to school? Yeah. Was there ever a time you didn't want to go to school? You hated school? You wanted to sleep in, stay in bed? Oh, yeah, lots of times. So now you are going to tell your kids, kids, you don't have to go to school if you don't want to because I'm not going to jam school down your throat. Did your parents make you go to bed at a decent time when you were a little fella? But you're going to tell your kids, you can stay up whenever you want because I'm not going to jam a bedtime down your throat. Did they make you eat something other than, you know, uh, super sugar crisps? You know, yeah, they did. They made me eat some healthy, nutritious food. But you're going to tell your kids, you can eat anything you want because I'm not going to jam health and nutrition and vegetables down your throat. No. See, see what happens here? I'm very serious about this. Satan picks on something spiritual. He was willing to jam down his kid's throat school, health, nutrition, bedtime, everything else, just not Jesus. Okay? Now, I, I think there's a way that we need to, to communicate to our children something that isn't offensive. So I, I don't know how his dad did all that and his mom did all that, but I do know Satan got in there and pushes those things. And we can't be deceived. We have an enemy of our soul. The Bible says so. And we're not supposed to cave to him. We're supposed to resist him. Now, I think it would have been a great idea if he said, you know what, I think my parents did horrible at getting me excited about Jesus and motivating me for Jesus. I'm going to do it differently with my kids. I'm going to come up with a better pattern for getting them to fall in love with Jesus. But it's very interesting how he only picks on spiritual things. Yeah, I'm on a soapbox. I might as well keep going. Okay. You're, you're, okay. Your money gets tight. I'm serious. Where do most people quit giving? Church. They don't cancel HBO. They don't ca- cancel ESPN. Your time gets tight. What do we do? We, we walk away from church. Now, the good news is you're all here. So you know I'm picking on somebody else other than you, right? So we, we, we say, hey, I, my time's tight. We're not going to give up the bowling group. You know, we're not going to give up anything else. We'll just give up church. It's a, it's a satanic pattern that he wants to pick on just spiritual things. Why? Because those are the things that liberate us. And so he knows, he, Satan wants you to be in bondage. He wants you to not have life to the fullest measure. And so he always will attack those little things. So, okay, we'll move on. Okay. Community. God calls us to community. When I was posting those things on Facebook and people were saying stuff, they, they would say things like this. Um, again, it was gracious, our conversations. And someone would be private because they didn't want to put their stuff out there, and I get that. It's fine with me. And they said, you know what? I just, I've had some disappointments in my life, some heartache, some hurt, some brokenness. And, and I haven't really abandoned God, but ju- ju- church has no, no joy for me, uh, no solace for me, no peace for me, no draw, no, no appeal, nothing. I'm glad it does for you, but I'm just telling you the truth. But almost every conversation would end like this, and I'm sure God understands. I'm sure God understands. So I want you to know this. God understands. God understands. God understands why you have a deep-seated hatred and bitter unforgiveness towards your ex. He understands that. God understands why you just keep logging into pornography. God understands. God understands why you rage and go into a cursing tirade at work or school or home or wherever, and everyone gets in fear. God understands that. But I want you to know, 
don't confuse understanding with approval. Don't, don't confuse understanding with approval. Now, by the way, if you say, I do one of those things or do all three of those things, I'm not here to beat you up and make you feel bad. I'm going to guess you're here already feeling bad about those things. I want to see you get free. I want to see you be liberated. I want, I, I'm hoping something we talk about today will help you. And so we're, we're supposed to encourage one another. And so I don't want to discourage you. I want to encourage you. God does understand, but he doesn't approve. When I misbehave, God understands. He knows everything. In fact, at one point in the, I think the psalmist, he saw how the people behaved and said, and God understood that we are but dust. He gets it, but he wasn't approving of their behavior. He just understood it. So God understands these things, but to just say God understands doesn't let us off the hook. We need to grow. Now, I get that. There's some of you watching today who you are shut in. You can't get out. Or you're still caught up in some fear with the COVID thing. I get that. Or maybe you're on vacation or you don't feel well. I get that. I get that. But if you are watching and could be in a home church, I would encourage you to do so. That I think it's very important and vital that we operate in community. And I know you're saying, but Tracy, there's no one on planet Earth I'd rather hear than you. Okay, I was waiting for the laughter there. Yeah. Uh, well, the good news is you can log on anytime you want and listen to it. So it is true about it's on Facebook all the time. So you can go to your home church if you really want to hear what I have to say. You can clock, clock in on Tuesday and listen to that. So there's another thing that happens that I want to warn us against. And by the way, I know I'm talking to people who are here but you can use this to share with others, or if you get a drawing to yourself to not be faithful to church. Because I know several people, when I talk to them about being in church, and by the way, when I talk to people about being in church, I don't say they have to be here. I, I rub shoulders with 60, 70, 80 ministers in this community, and we got lots of good churches, lots of good churches in lots of places. So I don't think this is everybody's cup of tea. But if we're not careful, we end up saying, I, I, I'm going to operate like a consumer. I'm going to say, Here's my 10 things I want in a church. And so you start visiting them, and they never quite get there. You know, they get to six or seven, but they just never quite have all 10. I get it. I would have a list too. But I also have a higher list, and that's God saying, go to church. And so then I say, okay, well, I can't find anybody that gives me all 10, so maybe I'm not going to go to what I think. By the way, it's all perception and preference most of the time. But I, I can't find a thing that meets all my needs. I can find one that's a seven, and so I'm going to go to a really pretty good church, but not a great church. Just go to church. You know, go to church. Be, be faithful to the house of the Lord. And uh, there's this beautiful promise in Psalm 92. In Psalm 92, 13, it said, Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. What a beautiful verse. I believe we become like Psalm 1 believers. We're not going in the way of the wicked and the sinner and the scornful, we're going in the way of God. We're fellowshipping with other believers. His laws are delight. And we become like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Our leaf doesn't wither. We bear fruit in our season. Everything we do prospers. Those are just beautiful promises from God. Now, I know what we're about to read is very crazy. It's non-self-centered. What I'm getting ready to talk about here is un-American. So it's a crazy thought, but I want to look at Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. We should think about each other. What? 
Are you kidding me? We should think about each other? I mean, I come to church, I'm thinking about me. Hope they pick the songs I want. Hope they're on the topic I want. Hope they don't talk about fasting again. Hope they do this. Hope they do that. Hope everything. Hope the building's clean. Hope I hope all those things too. I hope the building's clean. The grounds are nice. Hope the you know the temperature and the heater or air conditioning's work. Of course, I want all those things too. But look at what it says. We should think about each other. I'm talking about me too. We have all of us in this room have a consumer mentality where it's all about me. All of our commercials are all. Is it all about you? Um, McDonald's used to have, I don't know what they have anymore, but their thing used to be, you deserve a break today. Remember that? This is all about you. And what else could be better for you than McDonald's? So come on out. This is all about you. And so everything's all about you. Anything that you watch a commercial that's trying to get you to buy it is saying this is what your life is like, and it's crummy. But if you only had this gadget, whoo, your life would be wonderful. And our closets are full of those gadgets, aren't they? Where we go, I want to try. I was wanting to try something one time, and I was talking to a buddy of mine. I said, anything you want to try, you come to my house. i got a garage full of it. We bought every gizmo and gadget that we're not using. It's in the garage. So we get those things thinking, it's going to transform our lives. But it really doesn't. So here it says, we should think about each other to see how we can encourage each other to show love and do good works. So we're supposed to come together... And I'm supposed to be thinking about, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to show love. I want to encourage you to do good works and good deeds. So when you come, and we want to shift our thinking about coming to the house of the Lord, well, I'll mention that again at the very end, let's start thinking about others. How can I be a blessing to someone else? And so here it says, we must not quit meeting together as some are doing. I mean, we might read a report and say, Wow, church attendance is down in America. Well, it must have been down here in the writing of Hebrews, too. It said, we must not quit meeting together, some are doing. No, we need to keep on encouraging each other. So there it is again. One of our calls, one of our mandates to come together as a community to encourage each other. This becomes more and more important as you see the day, capital D, the day of the return of the Lord, getting closer. Now, we get some insights in this psalm from, from the sons of Korah. I know one of them was Asaph. I think another one was named Heman. I think there's like three of them. They were worship leaders, and they wrote, uh, wrote some of the psalms. And this, whichever one this is, it doesn't say. It just says sons of Korah, was having a spiritual problem. And he finally recognized that he's having a spiritual problem because he lost his passion for the house of God. Isn't that interesting? He, he had a moment where he went, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then he gives us some insight here. Let's look at this in Psalm 42. My heart is breaking as I remember how it what? How it used to be. My heart's breaking as I remember how it used to be. And then he starts describing how it used to be. Here's how it used to be. I used to walk among the crowds of worshipers. I used to lead a great procession to the where? House of God. The house of the Lord. I used to sing for joy. I used to give thanks amid the sound of a, what's the next two words? Great celebration. A great celebration. As we celebrate the Lord today, that we should always be people of celebration. A great celebration. And then he does uh, an inventory on himself, and he says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? And here he just he's thinking through things very logical. 
so let's let's follow this thought process. I used to be full of joy, thanksgiving, worship, praise. I used to be on fire for God, the house of God. Now I'm discouraged and sad. I used to be full of praise and joy. Now I'm discouraged and sad. So he starts evaluating himself. What's going on? Well, I used to lead a procession to the house of the Lord. I used to sing with joy. I used to be a person of thanksgiving. I used to get excited about a celebration. And so I believe he says to himself, I'm going to go back to what I used to do so I can have what I used to have. It's not real in-depth, but how I used to have. When I was a teenager in high school, I sang in a Christian band, and we were ministered in some place, and somebody came up to me and said, I used to be like you, I used to love the Lord, I used to this, I used to that. And I said, what were you doing when you used to? And said, I was really focused on my relationship with Jesus and being in church and growing in God. And I said, well, then go back to what you used to do. If you do what you used to do, then you'll get what you used to have. And so that's what he figures out. And here's a, a neat insight, too. He says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. Did you see there's an exclamation point there? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Here's an insight for us. There's nothing in here that says, oh my goodness, now that I've figured this out, my heart just got a wave of desire for God, for worship, for joy, for singing, for the house of the Lord. I don't see that. It's my assumption from what I'm reading there is that he didn't feel it, but he did will it. I don't feel it. I don't. If you're sad and discouraged, there are people at home today sad and discouraged, and they didn't come to the house of God because they're sad and discouraged. They didn't feel like getting up and going to church. They didn't feel like being in the house of the Lord. They didn't feel like singing praise. They didn't feel like that. Here the psalmist is giving us a little insight for growth. You don't always have to feel it. And sometimes when you don't feel it, you're going to have to will it. I will praise God. I will do that again. I will. I will. Didn't say I feel. I will. And so there's things in our lives that all of us face where sometimes you have to say, I don't feel it, but I'm going to will it. Now, we still need to call upon the Holy Spirit, Spirit because I know how good we are with following through on our willpower. So we need the Holy Spirit, who one of his fruit, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is to give us self-discipline or willpower. And so we call upon the Holy Spirit to help us. So we see this community that what we're doing right now, we've gathered together, we've left our homes, we've come here, said it's important to be in the house of the Lord. It's important. And, and it's important to keep a holy unity. Another little tweak to our thinking is, how much value do you put on the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? The Bible says you, we need to do everything we can to keep the Spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Do, do, we, do we think to ourselves what we're doing right now is a holy gathering? It has holy purposes to it. I need to treat it as holy. I need to do what I need to do to make sure it's holy. I need to forsake things. I need, I need to make sure I don't gripe or complain. I need to make sure, because it's easy, we're all like this. You, you might leave the uh, service today, and, and this isn't healthy for people to do, but you leave the service and you go out with some friends and you're saying, yeah, I think Tracy just was a little long today, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You know, And I think this, and I think that, and I don't understand why he did that, and I think you should look to some different verse. Next thing you know, you're, you're not doing 
what you need to do to preserve a spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Now you say, well, what do I do? Well, I, I'm an adult. You could come to me and say, hey, you know, I think when you said this or taught this, you need to look at that. and say, well, let's look at it. Let's check it out. But we don't just, because we're so passionate about keeping the holy unity of God. Do you understand what has happened all throughout Scripture when people gathered together in unity and with the bond of peace and a bond of unity, the things God could do in that midst? And so we honor it. We make it holy. So there's another function that goes on in community. And it's another Greek word. Again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just know how to look things up. And the, the word's koinonia. And the word koinonia is often translated fellowship. Now, here's the difference between, you know, an ecclesia and a fellowship and a koinonia. The ecclesia, we've gathered here. You could gather here for years and never have fellowship with anyone. They're two different animals. You're obeying the community side, but you don't really have fellowship. And so in Acts 2, 4, they dedicated themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread. The breaking of bread would include two things. It would include the Lord's Supper, but also would include meals. The Bible just said in the book of Acts on at least one more occasion that they, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And that doesn't necessarily mean the Lord's Supper, but just a meal. Because what do we fellowship around? Food. It's, it's, it's common. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if somebody said, let's get together, they usually say, you want to get together for breakfast, you want to get together for lunch, you want to get together for supper. There's usually some, you know, that we break bread together like that. And so here they were doing communion and eating together and to prayer. But they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, fellowship doesn't accidentally happen. Years ago, and I just have to thank the Lord about this, most of my encounters as we've talked with people, even when we had a different direction, were gracious, adult, and Christian. So after service one day, I was talking to a gentleman who came here for a few years, and this was several years ago. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about going to a different church. And I said, you know, finally. Um, that was a joke, by the way. I don't know if you... Okay. That's, it's, that's as good as it's going to get today. I, I, he said, I'm thinking about going to another church. And I said, why is that? I said, because there's a time here. And he kind of looked around the building and said, there's a time here where I used to have some friends here. You know, we fellowshiped together and had friendships. And most of them have moved to another community or onto a different church. And I really don't have any friends here. And uh, I said, let me ask you a question. I knew the answers to all of them. We had a good friendship, so I could say this. I said, hey, I said, um, uh, here, here at Crossroads, do you, do you ever uh, go to men's meetings or to Sunday school classes or to small group meetings or to work days? Or do you ever volunteer your gifts and skills to help and become part of a group? And he said, no, which I knew the answers to all that. And I said, okay, in the next church you go to, are you going to start doing those things? He said, probably not. And I said, then you won't have any friends there either. This is really true. You cannot walk in during the opening song and leave during the closing prayer and have koinonia, fellowship, friendships. And most of our ushers aren't trained to tackle that person on the way out and say, you cannot leave until we are friends. I want you to be my friend. And I'm very serious about this too. Is it not true that even as people who love Jesus that we don't always connect with other people? I mean, there's people that you love in the Lord, and they're Christians, you're Christians, you respect them, they respect you, but you don't want a vacation with them. You know what I'm saying? Are we allowed to say that in church? Yeah, it's true. And so the person that tackled you in the door would say, of all the people I wanted to tackle me and be my friend, it wasn't this person. I wish it would have been somebody else. So friendships are more organic. 
So we got this large group, like we're doing today, and then we have this koinonia, this fellowship. And for the record, it doesn't even have to be with somebody you go to church with. Every place I've ever worked, because I worked at places before I pastored here, I had a Christian friend there. We never attended church together, but we had rich koinonia. We had rich fellowship, and we had fellowship in the Lord. So it doesn't have to be here. Now, it's cool when it is. If you look around and say, well, I got you know three other couples I hang out with here, but maybe you don't. But I'm challenging you if it's not here. Find somewhere in your life where there's some Christian friends that you can have that koinonia, that fellowship in Jesus that's so important. One of the things that's important about the community and about fellowship is that we are called by God to live in community where we encourage one another, we love on one another, we pray for one another, we help one another in times of need. And that's where the koinonia comes in because sometimes people can come to a church, here in the other church, for years, and they get in a crisis, and they wonder why the church didn't come to their aid. And it may be sad to say, but if, if the pastor would get up and say, so-and-so is in crisis, 97% of the congregation would say, who's that? I don't even know who it is. They've, they've had the, the group setting, but they haven't built any relationships, so there's no one coming to them, not because the church is mean or the people don't love God. They don't know you. And so building those relationships and having Fellowship is so important. And one of the other things that happens in fellowship, too, and this is the thing we like, because usually when we're not mature, we just bail. But you're going to run into Christian people that you don't really care for that much. And they just, they irk you. You don't mean to. You pray about it, and you just don't connect. You know what I'm saying? And so, and then they're going to offend you. They're going to hurt your feelings. They're going to do something like that. And then you get to grow. You get to figure out how to love the unlovely. How to forgive, how to not gossip. You, you went to lunch and you wanted to say, oh man, I talked to John Doe after church today and I got, uh, okay, nope. And if you say anything, you're going to say this, I just blessed John Doe. I just blessed them, blessed them. And what, what's happening? I'm serious here, people. You're growing. You, even, even the relationships that aren't all that awesome actually cause us to grow and to become more like Christ. Okay. Now on to the spiritual discipline of celebration, which won't take as long. The church at large was destined by God to carry with it and in it a holy joy and a holy celebration. And if you've ever read your Old Testament, you will find out it wasn't because everything always went well. Things oftentimes didn't go well for the people of God in the Old Testament. Usually it could be traced back to their willful disobedience, but things weren't right, but God was still pushing for celebration and worship and praise. And there's something about the church. There's, There's like seven major Old Testament feasts, and every one of them but one, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement is a solemn day of fasting and mourning and introspection, but every one of them, the other six, are celebrations, festivals, There's supposed to be singing and feasting and merriment going on. That gives you a sneak peek into the heart of God. Six out of seven were celebrations. They were to be fun and festive and happy and joyful. That's the kind of God we serve. We need to bring joy. Joy needs to mark us as believers and needs to mark us as a church. Joy and celebration. Many years ago after a... uh, a very enthusiastic church service. Now, now this this all varies. 
I want you to get this, okay? Like today, if you were raised in a church like I was, that if you said amen, people might turn around and go, shh, you know, be quiet. You're getting a little too rowdy in here. If you were raised in a church like that, you what happened today might be, oh, there's not a, we're not going to handle snakes today, are we? You know, because that was, this is pretty wild. But I'll tell you, I fellowship with a lot of pastors, been a lot of churches that have, Today would have been their church service. A bunch of them would have been leaving saying, we just didn't quite get there today, did we? Just wasn't quite, you know, so that's all varies depending upon what you're used to. But in one particular service we had, it was pretty rambunctious. It was pretty wild, pretty rowdy for us. Uh, Probably a notch up from where we were at today. And in the foyer was a disgruntled yet kind person. I'm serious. I'd rather have him talk to me than go talk to 12 other people. They came up and said, I got a question for you, Pastor. I said, why? I said, is this what we are? Is this what we've become? Is this it? And uh, they've been coming here for years. I said, in the last hundred services you've, you've been at, did we have a service like this? They said, no. I said, okay, well, we're not trying to make anything become. It was just a wonderful day of celebration. If you would have looked around, you would have saw how it blessed so many people, even though it might not have been your cup of tea. Can you not care about others and say, well, hey, it wasn't my thing, but boy. Saw my brothers and sisters being blessed and filled and joyful, and so I'm okay with that. I said, what would you think if last week when we didn't have this service, you would have heard somebody come up to me and say, Pastor, you know, if we don't amp it up around here, I'm out of here. I mean, if this is all we're going to have, this is it, because that was what they liked. And so we've got to be careful about that, because God is a celebratory God. And, and I am totally against us just, you know, doing something to do it. I like that we enter in knowingly obeying scripture and worshiping God. Every time we sing that song, it says, uh, and uh, all the earth will shout his praise. It's always interesting because it always starts out so slow. And all the earth will shout his praise. We go, wow, shout and shout just doesn't seem to work for me. So as we get amped up in there, I make sure I, this is just me, you don't have to do this. I always, I'm on the front row, I figure people probably can't even hear me. I say, shout your praise because that's what the song's saying. Shout his praise. His praise is glorious. It's worthy of a shout. And just so you know it, I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised that way at all. You know what made me finally comfortable? I did it long before I was comfortable be able to shout to God. I'm going to tell you what made me do that. This. Wasn't my upbringing. Uh, wasn't the church I was raised in. You know, I'm not like some people, and I oppose this, not like, I'm fourth-generation Pentecostal who, we're loud people. No, it's just, uh, I started looking at the Word. I started reading stuff about lifting up hands to the Lord. I know I've told you this a hundred times. I, I just decided to do it one day. And I lifted up my hands to the Lord. And I'm not joking about this. They felt like they weighed 50, 60 pounds each. It's like, uh, 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 because I thought, but I just said, I just want to obey God. You know, I, I want to, God said, and it doesn't mean we always have to do it, but I'm going to lift up hands. It's okay to, to be quiet before the Lord. It's okay to shout before the Lord. It's okay to lift up hands. It's okay. This is crazy. It's okay to dance before the Lord. The thing that tenderizes my heart is when I read that God rejoices and dances over us. I'm like, wow. You know us intimately and you rejoice over us. He rejoices over us with singing and with dancing. And with praise. Okay, before I get in trouble, move on. 
Here's an interesting passage. It's, it's the translation I picked was the, the Passion Translation. For the record, it isn't even a translation. It's actually a paraphrase. I really like it, but I do want to say just my little teaching element. If you, if you go to really dig in and study Scripture, I don't mind referencing a translation, you know, see what they say, but it's usually one person's opinion of what the Scripture says versus a team of translators. So I don't always go to the, I don't go to those for a real deep study, but maybe for some extra insight. But in Luke 15, 6 and 7, it's a story about, remember the shepherd has got 100 sheep and one of them's gone, right? You remember that story? If it's your first time in church and you haven't heard it, there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep, he counts heads and he's only 99. <gasps> he's missing one. He doesn't say, ah, eh, it's just one. No big deal. No, he says, it's one. That one's important. And so he goes out and looks for it and finds it, and then we pick up on the verse here. Returning home, this shepherd called his friends and neighbors together and said, let's have a what? Let's have a party. Come and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Jesus continued, in the same way, there will be a, what's the next two words? Glorious celebration. There will be a glorious celebration in heaven over the rescue of one lost sinner who repents, comes back home, returns to the fold, more than for all the righteous people who never strayed away. Wow. I have a feeling in heaven, when God begins to celebrate, none of us are going to go, shh, shh, keep it down. You know, we're going to join in. We're going to celebrate. So heaven's breaking into celebration all the time with people giving their lives to Jesus. It's a place of celebration. And I love your celebration. When we baptize, I tell everyone I'm going to baptize, hey, let me tell you what. When you come up out of that water, those people out there, they're going to be clapping. They're going to be cheering. They're going to be shouting. They're going to be celebrating. And you never let me down. I don't, you, you notice there's not a sign that comes up that says applause. You know, there's just, there's just, they come down and you guys just spontaneously celebrate because that's what we should do. Well, they didn't do that in the church I was raised in. Well, they should have. They didn't do it in the church I was raised in either. But it's celebration. You got somebody saying, I am making a public commitment of my devotion to Jesus. And we celebrate. I was really blessed with this a couple weeks ago. I was just making a, a, a comment as we were closing. And I said, hey, if uh, you didn't raise your hand or make a commitment in here to Jesus, but you did in your heart, go out there in the foyer and tell those people, and they'll give you a new believer's Bible. And I just said in passing, I said, by the way, it happened a couple weeks ago. There's a young lady out there who met me and said she wanted to, really recommit her heart to Jesus, and we prayed together. And when I said that, you all clapped. And it wasn't like I was looking for that. I was actually trying to wrap up the service, but I remember pausing, thinking, that's good. That's a right spirit. That when you hear somebody, when you hear a sheep has come back to the fold, there's something in us that I say, we got we to gotta applaud or something. We got to clap. We got to get excited. Uh, why? Because all of heaven has a glorious celebration. Myself, too, I'd probably be blown away if God ever really answered our prayer completely. We say to God the Lord's Prayer. Prayed all over the world. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So you're saying that what's going on up there, we're praying for it to happen down here? Well, we just read this. In heaven... When a sinner returns, there's glorious celebration. And we're praying the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's apparently the Lord's will. Is anything going on in heaven that's not God's will? 
No, it's apparently God's will that celebration happens when somebody gets saved. And so we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's celebrate. Well, I, I can't do that. Well, what do we have to do? We have to do what I had to do and what many of you had to do. have to retrain ourselves to be doers of the word and not, re, not replicate our culture, our, our personal culture. But, and that could go both ways. Uh, I was in a church service one time where the holy, sweet presence of God just fell all over the place. And there was just a, a somber silence and just a beautiful, intimate, quiet time before the Lord. And, and this did not happen here, by the way. And the guitarist stepped up and said, we got to get the Spirit of God moving in here. And started playing, you know, a raucous song. And I'm thinking, where were you in what we were just experiencing? But his culture said, this can't be spiritual, only noise and volume. There's time for both. And so it can really go either way. We need to, to adapt to the culture of heaven. So let's look at that previous verse read. We'll wrap up. Psalm 42, 4 and 5, we read it. But I want to remind us of this because it pulls the community and celebration together. My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I used to walk among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession in the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sounds of great celebration. That, that's one of the spiritual disciplines, is that we learn to come together to celebrate together. It's one thing about our, our private devotions, and that's good, our private disciplines, but corporate disciplines. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior, my God. So our assignment this week, I always like to give us an assignment is to rethink your attitude towards the gathering of the church. Why do we gather? When we gather, we should think about someone else. That I might encourage them, spur them on towards love and good deeds, and be purposeful about coming with joy and with celebration in my heart. And, and I, I mean this, there, there's a, I don't want you to come in and just fake your way through a service and go home and fake your way home, but I am saying this, what would happen if we said, you know what, I'm discouraged, I'm sad, I'm downcast, but I, by, by my will, I'm going to come in and I'm going to praise God and I'm going to have joy and I'm going to have thanksgiving. Now, now I want you to hear this. I want you to get prayer before you leave, though. I want you to get somebody. We're not asking you, let's just come in and fake it, pretend like everything's okay. No, you came in and in faith, worship God and praise God through your pain, through your brokenness. I celebrate you for that. I I. I love you for that, but I don't want you to go, well, I can't really gasp for prayer now because you know, everybody thought everything was okay with me. No, you, you just were being obedient to the word. Now let's be obedient to the word too. Let's get a one another to come around and pray for you and help you and encourage you. And we, we need all that. That's why we need both the group event and the small fellowships as well.